Welcome to another episode of the Founder Fundamentals Podcast. My name is Rahul Kumar, and today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Sergio Furio, founder and CEO of Creditas. Prior to founding Creditas, Sergio was a principal with the Boston Consulting Group, specializing in retail banking strategy, advising some of the leading global financial institutions in areas including strategy, marketing, operational excellence, technology, M&A, and assets and liabilities management. Sergio also happens to hold an MBA from Cornell University. Thanks for joining us, Sergio. Thank you, guys. Thank you for hosting. So tell us a little bit about your background prior to BCG and your MBA. Is starting a business something that you've always aspired to do? Is it something that runs in the family? Where did this uh, desire come from? No, so definitely not. I have like a very traditional background. Graduated in 2000 in business, spent five years in investment banking, and then seven years in consulting within BCG, right? So it was like an unlikely movement. I had never met before anyone that was like doing entrepreneurship until one of my friends from consulting actually decided to start up a company back in my days in New York. And that was okay. 2010. So I was like the first check for this guy. I So I like obviously monitored him very quickly. He was like a very good friend of mine. And then, um, you know, like a, a year, a year and a half after that, I was like uh, in this mood of, um, yeah, I'm doing this nice career, but things are so slow. And, uh, you know, banks are moving so slow. I, I was doing a technology transformation that was supposed to be creating like a massive uh, change in a bank. And the project took us like four years to implement. After four years, the world had changed so much that the project didn't make like any sense anymore, right? So, so yeah, I decided to give it a try. I considered it as a, you know, let's um, make it as like a, another MBA for like two years and see if it works. And if not, I will go back to the, to the regular banking job. So it happened to have worked uh, fantastically for you and congratulations on all the success that you've had with Creditas thus far and all that is to come. But given that your professional experiences and services have roughly aligned with the domain that Creditas actually operates in, was it during your experience with BCG or DB that you decided to actually start Creditas? Like when did that moment occur for you that I'm gonna start this business? Yeah, yeah, so so the, the, the rationale was I was 34, you know, my mindset was like, it's either now or never. If I was going to give it a try, I wanted to do it with something that I actually knew about. I had been working like 12 years in banking. So the, you know, working in technology, startup, specialized in banking really made like a lot of sense. And Kratos ended up like being less of an idea. You know, we actually didn't know what we were going to do. We just picked up like a model that was working in those days that was lead generation for the banking industry. Yeah. And we said, okay, so this looks like simple to apply. We took that concept and we said, okay, so geographically, there are like so many people doing this in the States that, you know, one more, there's not going to make a difference. You had like already like a huge companies at that point. I remember the reference in those days were people like uh, Bankrate that was ultimately acquired by the guys from... I think it was Red Ventures. So, so we say, okay, so geographically, it doesn't make like any sense for me to do it in these states. I have no competitive advantage. So I, at that point, my girlfriend, that now is my wife and mother of two daughters, very happily married, she happens to be Brazilian. And she tells me one day, you know, interest rates in Brazil for a personal loan is 200%. Uh, and that was it. That was it. <laughs> okay, that looks like an interesting market. And it's huge, like 200 million people. And it looked like the banks were very inefficient and so on. So I had like a very deep due diligence over two weeks. And uh, then said, okay, yes, this is it. Let's let's do it. So it was combining like a, an area of expertise, 
with an idea of uh, a we can change the world applying technology. At that point, penetration of smartphones in Brazil was probably like a 15% or so. In the US, it was already like 60. Or, we said, okay, so if the same thing happens in Brazil, people is going to start like using actually digital banks much more. So let's go there and give it a try. But, you know, disrupting an industry with just my last bonus of consulting, it was not like a ton of money. So we said, okay, lead generator, it's, it's just going to be fine. We will just learn from it. And then hopefully in a year or so, we will be able to fundraise some money from other people. You know, the last point that you brought up is very interesting, and I want to dig on that for just a second, which is you mentioning that you decided to start this company when you were 34. And I bring that up because especially in the United States, you see this glamorization of entrepreneurship manifesting as 20-year-olds running billion-dollar businesses immediately out of university or the common, let's just quit school and do this. And there is this reality, and you're a fantastic example, that many people start businesses a little bit later in life once they have a solid operational foundation uh, in other roles. So I'm curious to get your thoughts around, you know, what was your emotional state when you decided to start this business? Because you're mentioning, you know, you got this from your girlfriend at the time, who's now your wife, and, you know, you have a family at that point. So as you start to mature in your own life, in your own professional and personal life, how does this decision come about to actually go say, hey, I'm going to take this wild risk? Yeah, so probably the, the reason why, you know, Silicon Valley a type of entrepreneur is like the, someone in his early 20s is probably because the risk aversion is much lower you have like nothing to lose. What's going to happen? Okay, no. you just get out from university and you just like do something. If it doesn't work out, someone is going to employ you. That's fine. When you're 35, then you don't have like a, maybe like a mortgage, a family, kids, and uh, it's much trickier, right? And probably that's the reason. I, I wouldn't try to rationalize it okay. of, uh, on things of, you know, if uh, you're younger, then you can have like a better vision about the future, or if you are older, you have much more experience. I, I think that both things are great. And uh, it, it's probably more like a circumstantial okay. of what's the moment in your life and how much likely you are to really focus relentlessly on what you want to do. In my case, it was, uh, you know, I already had like some money in the savings account. I had an apartment in New York without a mortgage. And I said, okay, so if everything goes bad, I will sell this apartment. And actually, I, I ended up like selling the apartment because it took me more than a year and a half yeah. to get fundraising. <laughs> so I said, okay, let's sell it. And then two months later, I got the fundraising. But it was like, uh, it was just like, okay. And, and actually, I thought that, you know, everything in my life has gone well. So if it doesn't for once, I'm pretty sure that I will find a job. And I will go back to pay my bills. Obviously, on the other side, my wife, he has like an amazing job. He has always been like uh, much smarter than I am, extremely, she's a rock star. So having like that type of safety net, I had an agreement with her and and, and I said, hey, I, don't, I want to split the bills. Like uh, 50%, we're going to put like an account, we're going to put the money there and, and that's going to be it. And, and it's just like that until today. But, uh, you know, in the early days, it was like a, yeah, let's do it like that. But if a month I really cannot do it, would you support me? And I think that obviously that's uh, very much helpful. That's also solid relationship advice coming from Sergio. So uh, definitely keep that on your checklist. <laughs> but I do want to ask you about this solo founder debate. You know, it's clearly worked very well for you, but a lot of the guidance is to have a co-founder for either the emotional component, which includes the ups and downs of entrepreneurship, or for complementary knowledge purposes as well. What are your thoughts on that? And I, I guess in your case, what do you think really worked very well for you that you were able to start a company of this scale as a solo founder? 
Yeah, I'm not a very easy person. <laughs> and uh, I really don't know what it would be to have like started up like Freitas with uh, a co-founder. And uh, you want a co-founder that is like uh, better than you. Otherwise, why would you bother? Yeah. And if he's better than me, we would probably discuss a lot. And that's what actually like smart people does, right? It's uh, we just discuss because we love the you know the the mental challenge and all those things. And uh, there's like this said that you know if you want to run fast, you run alone. And if you want to go far, then you really need to build a team. Yeah. And uh, if you think about it in those terms, what worked for me is that in the early days everything was very fast, and uh, we had like no money. I didn't want to get like a too many opinions around the table. We were going to go this route and then I changed it like 10 times the route. Yeah, it's sort of having like a thought partners on that, on that process, it may help. But, you know, taking those decisions fast, it was also like a, a good thing. Now, when things started getting more solid and we had like to actually scale the business, not having a co-founder was a bad idea. So I replaced that with bringing in like an amazing executive team that are actually entrepreneurs with me. They got like a salary cut, so probably like a 70, 80% of what they were getting in the corporate world. And they were getting like stock in exchange. That was like post series A in 2016 or so. And we built that team and that team today is running the business. So I think that I, I decided to, you know, early days, the first three, four years, Remember that it was like the old days in Brazil. And at that point, nobody wanted to fund businesses, yeah. right? Brazil was not cool. Today, Brazil is amazing. Yeah. It's like a great opportunities, a land of like a massive companies and so on. But at that point, nobody wanted to do that. So we spent like probably too much time in the pre-series A. That was like three years. Then we got the series A. Then a year later, I say, okay, no way. We really need like serious, uh, serious people here running the, running the table. So if they got their stock at the Series A of when Creditas was, they should be very, very satisfied people today, to say the least. <laughs> they are extremely satisfied. Uh, actually, we had like this view of, you know, at least every three years we need to do 10 times. And they definitely did like much more than that. Yeah. But we had like a, you know, we always had like this view of, uh, you know, we're entrepreneurs. We have like all our wealth here in the company. We will like increase our salaries over time. And we are like catching up with the market, still like below the market which is great because that proves that we still keep the entrepreneurial spirit. But, you know, the, the equity really is the, is the story. So you touched upon earlier on your motivation and how you started the business. But for those that may not understand, how do you actually go about setting up a fintech venture? If you're making personal loans, do you use that initial venture capital to underwrite these loans? Where you, are you getting a line of credit from a banking partner? Is someone else underwriting them? What was that process at a high level of what it takes to actually set up a business like Creditas? Yeah. So it looks like a, being a banker, which is actually what we do to a certain extent, is something for rich people, right? You have money, so you lend money. Obviously, you need to escape that trap because otherwise it's going to be, you're going to have like a hard time unless you're like Rockefeller or something. The route that we took was step one. Let's partner with the guys that actually have the money and those were the banks. Yeah. So we just built a marketplace that was... 2012 to 2016, just purely marketplace model. We were like doing the user experience, learning from them, and then getting their money to actually do the loans. In 2016, we said, okay, so now we're grown-ups now, and, and actually we think that we can do it much better than them. So who else has money? And obviously the investors had money, the fixed income investors. 
So we created like a pool, super diversified of, you know, institutional investors, pension funds, insurance companies, retail investors. And we put all them together and we cre- started like creating SPVs, like uh, trusts in which we fundraise in capital markets. We get, you know, the rating agencies uh, rate our securitization bonds. And then we go to the market, get the funding from them, and then we lend that money to the individual. So in at the end, we created a model that is extremely efficient from a capital perspective because we get the money from third parties. Today, we put literally zero dollars in our securitizations, but we still keep what we call the equity tranche of yeah. the securitization, which is all the upside, all the excess spread. So we pay a low fixed rate to the institutional investors in the securitization fund, and then we get a variable rate from the consumers. And then there's like a massive spread there, which means that our ROEs are not measured in the tenths percent type of things. It's significantly higher because we don't consume capital. So arguably setting up a business like Creditos is much more difficult than many other types of businesses, not only just because you know, you're involved in financial services. Also, there's usually some regulation involved or some you know, legal parameters that you have to fall within when doing actual consumer lending. So what kept you up at night when you first started the business and what keeps you up at night now as a late stage funded venture? Yeah. So when I started the business, it was everything was about just pure traction, you know, finding customers, problem market fit, and that was it. In 2016, which is when we moved into our own loans, then the regulator came in, right, at that point. And actually, it was like a fascinating moment. So we had a customer service operation. It was like at that point, maybe just like 20, 25 people or so. And uh, one day, a guy from the customer service comes running into me and said, hey, we just got a call from the central bank. They want to meet you. And I say, we are up. And uh, what, what's going to happen with this? Jesus Christ, these guys are going to close up the shop. You know, the central bank in Brazil is in Brasilia, in the federal district. So you need to take a plane. And I go there. I put back a suit. I didn't put a tie, but I put a suit for the first time in like four years or so. And I got into the room. And there were like 20 people from the central bank. And uh, the head of uh, regulation that reports directly to the president of the central bank was the one that had appointed the meeting. And uh, I got there and all those guys were with notebooks. They actually fascinating. They wanted to learn. They were like all these new thing, fintech in Brazil. They yeah. were hearing about it in the newspapers. They, and they weren't there really to had- grill you like a lot of the tech founders these days. <laughs> No, no, that, that's it. It's, it's, it's amazing. So by the central bank, they, they, they actually did a very good job. They really want disruption to happen. They want to avoid uh, oligopolies and monopolies and the like. And they think that fintech can really help them. But obviously, you know, that day I remember, you know, this is the day. That it's it's going to be over today. They're going to tell us that sh- shut that shop down. So, so no, so that was like the, on the contrary, they became a very good friend of us. I probably did like 20 meetings in Brasilia after that one. And uh, that culminated in the creation of a new regulation in 2018 that we participated very actively to get our own license and be able to operate independently from the banking industry. Uh, and probably now, these days, you know, the, the it's everything about, you know, how complex it is to continue growing 3X at scale, right? So we have like uh, 1,500 employees now. Uh, these things are getting much more serious. It's like a uh, 
you know, hard dollars in this. You just like structuring the team, making sure that the thing doesn't collapse because you're building the plane while, while you're growing, you're flying it and, and so on. And regulation is still like an important factor here. And uh, probably we will be getting another type of license that gets us into the retail deposit space to have like an even wider diversification in the funding sources. You mentioned one of the primary reasons that you started the company is there is this concept that the interest rate is too high on the loan. In the world of financing, as consumers, we're always out trying to get the best rates. And, you know, it's a very important factor that a company may be competing on. How do you enable that for your customers versus your competitors or a traditional bank loan? We've always said that lending is just the beginning. It's much more about lending, but I'm going to talk about that in a second. But but now, yeah, lending was the beginning. And we said, okay, so rates are too high. And then we double click very, you know, consulting type of approach into the problem and why is that this happens and there are like uh, different levers on it. But typically people think it's because delinquency is high, number one, and two, because funding cost is high, right? So it's the credit risk and the liquidity risk. We realized that that was not the problem and that the problem was in reality the distribution network and the fact that the productivity on the branch level was 10x lower than in the States or Europe, right? So one branch would have 10 times less volume, but still this pretty much the same costs, so what they did was inflating the price, the incumbents. So the margin of a regular loan is 10x higher than in the States or Europe, right? So it's 10x lower volume per branch, 10x higher price. So you make the ends map. Um, so, so we said, okay, so to solve this problem, it's, it's going to be all about like efficiency. And uh, what we did was like, let's focus in technology, one, and then let's focus on higher tickets, two. Right. And the name of the game, when you combine those two things, you say, okay, so what are the products that we actually can deliver to the Brazilian population that are not popular today? And we came up with this thing of collateralized lending, which obviously in the States and Europe is a very normal thing, but it's not that normal in Brazil and Latin America in general, especially because of the complexity. So it's not only that the population doesn't know about it and the banks actually don't really want them to know about it. It's more than that. It's that they complicate. You don't have in real estate, for example, you don't have title insurance. So you need to do the title insurance underwriting yourself, as opposed to in the States that you just pay someone to do it and then they just do it, right? So that was like a really important for us, right? Now, once you get into saying, okay, so I build a platform, I have like the product and uh, what I actually do is to create like loans very cheaply and that securitize them. And then you create a like recurrence and then everything works and uh, we have like a beautiful model. But then you say, okay, so is this going to be sustainable, right? Which is phase two, right? Is this going to be here forever? Is, is there never going to be like another creator that is going to come and do exactly the same as what we do? And obviously the, the answer is uh, definitely there's going to be many more creators coming to the game. So we said, okay, so what else do we need to do? And that's what brings you to the, it's, there's, lending was just the beginning. When the, someone comes to do a home equity with us, it's because they are doing, for example, a home renovation, or it's because they're like upgrading their car or things like that. So then we came up with the idea that in reality, fintech in the future is going to be much more than just banking. It's uh, providing the end-to-end -end solution. And... Uh, one of the things that we are doing now is we are renovating the apartments of our customers and we merge it with a financial product and that creates an even better product, right? Or in the payroll side, right, that we operate in with long-term payroll loans, we said, okay, so why are people getting loans from us? And uh, 
it's to buy things like 3,000, 4,000 reais, uh, like $1,000 spend or so on. And, and we said, okay, so we partnered with Apple and we created a program, which is Apple for Life, with your salary, right? So it's uh, we partner with your employer and uh, you get your iPhone brand new every year and you just pay like a fixed monthly, fixed monthly fee from your salary. And every year we just uh, swap your phone. And uh, this in the US is something like normal. In Brazil, definitely it's not because the math doesn't work. Funding cost is higher, delinquency is higher. You wouldn't be able to offer like a, a good product for them. But then when you put the employer into the equation, then delinquency falls and the distribution cost falls because you already have like a captive audience. Right? So these type of things is what we actually do. And we think that it's the way that, that, that you're building something for the future that is much more sustainable. I find it personally very interesting that Creditas has this unique opportunity. I think part of it is also a function of given the fact that you're based out of Brazil, where in the US, we have these sub-verticalized markets that are very, very built out, like in the case of when you're doing apartment renovation, or as you mentioned that, whereas in Brazil, you have the opportunity to actually own that entire value chain, given the platform that you've built out. On that same topic, what is next for Creditas and how do you see the company scaling even further? Are there plans to break into additional markets or products? Yeah, so we define three ecosystems that we are passionate about. It's your house, your car, your salary, right? So those are the three. Yeah, that's that's massive. You can think about it, right? It's probably the, the two biggest investments that you do in your life and the way that you sustain your family. So if you manage to be present in those three things, probably you're gonna do like a you're gonna have like a very big dream. So what we said, okay, so if you think about those three assets. We want to plug products around it and then create ecosystems for the customer that keep them into our platform, right? So it's all about what we are doing now and, and, and answering your question about what's, what's next for us is building products around those three ecosystems so that customers don't need to go anywhere else and that we can provide a full-fledged solution so that, you know, imagine a customer comes to us, they need a loan, they give the car as a collateral because they need money. Then two years later, situation changes. They don't need money anymore. They want to upgrade the car. You know what? I want to be present in that moment. I actually want to anticipate that moment and even give you a suggestion. You know what? I found a car like yours, but three, eight, three years newer than the one that you have. The extra price that you are going to be paying is actually zero per month because I'm going to extend your loan for one more year and you get like a brand new car for you. So those things are the ones that we are working on. Hopefully we will be able to serve the customers better. And just a final question, what are three pieces of advice that you'd give to new entrepreneurs? Three, no, not one, just three. That's, three, uh, five, uh, whatever uh, pleases uh, you. I'm going to try. So the first one is always resilience, right? So it's uh, so this is about stick to it, work as much as you can and smartly if you can that's even better but just stick to it right it's uh entrepreneurship is like a hard thing to do and uh the tendency is uh, you know you try it doesn't work you try it doesn't work you try it for the third time and then you think that that's it uh, and then you realize that if you, when you're an entrepreneur you, you you realize that it's 99 times before actually you hit the home brand right so sticking to it really pays off i would say num number two is uh Regardless of if you're like a founder or a co-founder, so if you have like a more than one, just uh, don't underestimate the importance of people. Some of us are, you know, A players, you know, top notch. We know it all. 
and uh, very technical people, we tend to think that we can do it. We actually can't. And especially when things start like getting better and better. So definitely like uh, build a team and make sure that you actually, even if you don't like dealing with people or managing, if you want, figure out the way in which you feel passionate about it because you will actually need to do it. And then finally, if you want to build a massive business based in technology, high chances you're going to need external capital. So really listening to what investors are telling you and what they're looking for, if uh, unless you're rich, and then you, you can avoid listening to them. But if you're not, listen to them. So that was like a big mistake that I did. Actually, I, I thought that I knew the answer and I was like talking to them and uh, they actually were not looking for what I was offering them. And uh, it's a waste of time. So talk to them in advance, uh, much before you actually need to fundraise capital. And think if that's something that motivates you. If not, maybe look in a different direction. But if they don't like what you are doing or what you are thinking, high chances you're gonna, not going to be able to fundraise. That was Sergio Furio, founder and CEO of Creditos. Sergio, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Have a good day, guys.